What's going on, everyone? I'm Brad Johnson. I host Corner Table Talk, where we explore subjects related to food, plus strength, plus culture. And as always, with your questions or comments about our show, we love your questions and your comments. You can reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. So in the mid-1980s, my dad's restaurant, The Cellar in New York City, was coming off of a hot streak. Our program of live entertainment was drawing standing room only crowds. The likes of Melissa Morgan, Platinum Hook, Keith Sweat, Najee, and Johnny Kemp. Then only locally known rock the house three nights a week until 4 a.m. For some unknown reason, in April of 1987, then Mayor Koch decided to reinforce an antiquated cabaret law basically limiting the number of musicians on a stage at any one time. I don't have to tell you this had a major impact on places like the cellar and cafes and clubs around the city as there was no clear path to obtain a cabaret license. Around this time, a couple of good friends of mine, Barry Adams and Eric Williams, were promoting parties around the city. The combination of the crackdown on live music venues coupled with increased competition from newer spots like the Shark Bar and B. Smith resulted in the seller losing a good portion of its weekend business. So Barry and Eric became investors in the seller and as an answer to the challenge of what to do for weekend entertainment to make us competitive, we hatched a plan to feature up and coming comedians. Looking back at some of the talented performers, now the names read like a who's who of the comedy world. Mind you, this was 1987, five years before Russell Simmons would launch Deaf Comedy Jam. The plan worked. The crowds returned. Our roster included Kim Coles, Bill Bellamy, Vincent Henry, Phyllis Yvonne Stickney, Rick Aviles, Chris Rock, and my guest today, a young man who still has that baby face from Washington, D.C., who was instantly a favorite, the brilliant Tommy Davidson. So in preparing for today, I read Tommy's memoir, Living in Color. In the years since we met, I'd run into Tommy here and there in L.A. He's always warm, and he always made me feel like he and I had a special bond. I think aside from his incredible ability to make people laugh, being kind is just a natural for him. What I didn't know was Tommy's life story. All I can say is you can't read this book and not come away with a profound appreciation for the gift that Tommy is to all of us. So with that, welcoming my man, what's up? Tommy Davidson. What's happening, man? Great intro. You know that. Thank you, brother. Thank you, man. Good to have you. So we kick things off, Tommy, with what I call short order questions. It's a couple of things I'm going to fire at you quickly. You've been in the kitchen. You know what short order is. So tell me, man, what are you listening to, Tommy? What music is on your playlist? The music that's on my playlist is definitely not what all the kids, the hip hop and all that stuff. I, I listen to smooth jazz. I listen to a lot of Latin contemporary, but mostly smooth jazz. And I've been listening to that for the last probably about 28 years, although I listen to old R&B, old 80s R&B. Can't leave that out. That's a whole segment of beautiful producers and beautiful music. But for the most part, that's what I'm listening to. Yeah, man. I'm with you on that. So tell me, what's the first thing that you drink in the morning? Your morning beverage? Coffee. And it has to do with my routine. It has to do with my routine is to go to Starbucks, whatever city I'm in, and order coffee and wait in line, get it, and then go about what I'm going to do. It's probably the only opportunity I have to really just balance myself with everybody else. I'm going to have a normal morning like everybody else and just hang out with people because that's where I come from. So once I do that, then I can go on to whatever I'm doing. So it's, it's, and I want to be the customer. You know, I want to go there, yeah. ask for what I want, get it and go. You just, you like being the guy in the line at Starbucks. I like that, man. Just oh, yeah. the cat. How about diet? Vegan, vegetarian, flexitarian? What, how are you eating? Like, I'm like a, a grizzly bear. I'm, I'm an on, omnivore, okay? If it tastes good, it's going down. And I know being 50, I got to start thinking about how I eat, but I mostly eat for flavor. 
I eat like a football player when it comes down to really eating. I eat a lot. I eat a lot of proteins, steak, chicken, but I have an international palate. So I, I just like too many different types of foods, Jamaican food, Cuban food, Thai food, Indonesian food, Indian food, Italian food. So that's a lot. That's a lot. My menu is vast. You'll never see me going, you can't eat, nope, can't eat that. Nope, can't eat that. Nope, sorry, don't eat that. Don't, nope. I'm like, okay, yeah, 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 got MSG in it, but I, go ahead and give me the Mongolian beef. Which, yeah, you're a good guest at the dinner table. Yes. Yeah. All right, how about your favorite live comedy performance, not your own? I think my favorite live one is probably uh, Richard Pryor, Lawa Sunset Strip. That's my favorite one. He's my favorite comic because he can do, he can make you experience the comedy. So you experience it. You're not watching it anymore. When you watch him, you're a part of it. You're in, you're on the stage with him. That's what I love the yeah. most about that special. I remember first getting that, that nigga's crazy album and playing it at home, man, and not wanting my parents to hear that I was listening to it on my stereo, me and my boys in my room, man, but that album yeah. just cracked me That's up. That's the man. one they got us all, right? That's the one. That yeah. Know every word still. All the jokes. <laughs> yeah. All right. So how about the last person that made you laugh? The last person that made me laugh. I do a lot of comedy now. So I got to go right to something recent. But I think it was Earthquake did a concert Father's Day. And I just watched him for a couple of seconds and he was racking me up. So that's the last one. But when you said the last person that made me laugh, this has got to be the next day. And then the next day. That's your life. All right, man, let's jump in here. How are you, Tommy? How you doing, man? You look great. Things are good. Things are good. I'm at the point where I can accept the things that don't go my way a lot better than before. I'm a lot more flat on my feet about who I am. So I work each day towards an ideal of what I'd like to be doing. And then that's enough. That's enough for me. Well, before we go back a few years and revisit some of the high points in your career and big moments for you, I want to read a couple of quotes from the back cover of your book and just get your reaction if you don't mind. Yeah, okay, good. So Whoopi Goldberg had this to say, Tommy Davidson is a journeyman performer. He knows the how and the what, and his timing is off the hook. He's one of my favorite performers. Oh, and did I mention he's really funny, end quote. So you mentioned a deep admiration for Whoopi in your book. What are your thoughts when you hear those words back again, Tommy? That she, the good thing about her is she doesn't want anything from you. She just wants you to do good. She wants you to live good. She wants you to have good things while you're here on this place we live. She pointed me out as one of her magnificent seven. She said, you're part of the magnificent seven. And that's the comedians that know how to do everything. Jim Carrey, Billy Crystal, Tom Hanks. Maglo Keaton, her, and me. Wow. That's what she put it at. That's elite company, man. I remember going to, she just down to earth, calls it like it is. She's like the people that I grew up with in DC and in New York. I was going to an audition for, I think one of the cast members of Friends was doing a new sitcom. And I went in there and I looked and they had a hundred black dudes in the line for this one part. You know what I mean? And I walked out of there. I was just like, you know what? I'm going to get out of here. They got plenty to choose from. Cool, where I'm at. My agents were like, why did you leave? You could have went in. You could have did that. You could have did that. I just didn't feel like being picked through. Obviously, you don't want me today. You want to see how many of us you can get together and then pick out of all of us. I don't feel like being picked over. And I don't have to. But the agents got over the phone with me. So I'm walking and she says, well, what are you doing over here? And I said, I just walked out of an audition. And she said, good for you. Good for you. I say, I'm going to go and cook me something today and I got a plane to catch tomorrow. She reinforced, right. reinforced my right to be able to determine my own destiny out here. Yeah. yeah. And there's a security in that, man. And you feel like, I don't need to do that. They know who I am. And if they want me, they know where to find me, but you don't have to do that. So you don't. I like that choice. Tommy. Yeah. Yeah. So how about this from Byron Allen quoted on the back of your book? So Tommy Davidson is brilliant enormously talented and extremely funny. His performances are the perfect combination of a force of nature and a work of art. 
This memoir is an absolute gift because it gives us a glimpse into his genius, end quote. Byron's a bit of a genius himself, man. That's pretty high praise. Yeah, that's good. I'm really glad that he said all those good things about me. I've done a lot of work for him, a lot of work in his different shows and things that, that we've done. And he's a genius and a genius in business. I'm, I love to know him. I do think that was an accomplishment of mine to get him to do that on the back of my book because he very rarely does things for people that do things for him. So I was impressed. I was really happy about that. I was like, thank you very much. About time. Yeah. Nice payback. Yeah. You could say that. I'm speaking just from business. You can just from business with us. We can't take the white man's business rule. Okay. They have a rule in business with us and their idea of a good deal is they start out. This is their starting point. I get everything and you get nothing. Now go ahead. Let's negotiate. And they go from there. We don't got to do that. We don't have to take that business model, but sometimes we do. And some people do. That's okay. But I don't. I go from the business model that, Hey, you have something I want. I have something you want. Let's work together and share the profit. Yeah. I'm with you there, Tommy. That's a whole nother podcast, <laughs> but yeah. I know you have insight into what you're talking about there. And I'm right there with you. Jim Carrey had this to say, quote. The massive challenges that Tommy has faced in life have been no match for his soaring talent and indomitable spirit. If he had lady parts, my search would be over. <laughs> of course, Jim's got to be funny, but he touches on the massive challenges that you face and overcome. But your thoughts on what Jim says here, Tommy? He's probably one of my best friends. You know, what he's saying there is quite fairly, our friendship is based on us being in an even parallel, an even parallel personally and professionally, and even with the personal stuff that I've gone through too. He says in very few words, what needs to be said. And that is, Hey, boy's just like me. He's well-rounded. He respects others. He respects where we're coming from and he's willing to help anytime. So it's really putting that on equal play. He just crazy, funny as hell. And so if they have that. If someone of his magnitude, in, in, as far as the business goes, to come in and make a quote on my book, just says that he's just like me. There, there were a couple others I won't read, but Quincy was one of them. You had the cream of the crop endorse this book. So let's jump into it, Tommy. And for those of you like me, who I've known Tommy for 30 plus years, and I had no idea of your story, brother. But for those of you like me who don't know Tommy's story, he gets right into it. Chapter one, page one, and I'm going to read a little passage from that. And then uh, Tommy's thoughts on the other side. So he says, quote, I was born in Greenville, Mississippi. The woman who gave birth to me, Tommy Jean Reed, was an African-American single mother. When I was an infant, she could not care her for herself, much less me. She left me in a pile of garbage. That's the truth. I know this because my mother, Barbara Jean Davidson, who was white, saw my foot sticking out from behind a tire in that pile of garbage and she rescued me. I was floored, Tommy, when I read that, man. And you put that right up front. I had no idea that was how your life began. So your thoughts, how old were you when you first heard that story and what was your reaction? I actually didn't hear that story until I was in my late when I really asked for the real truth, because I was told that she worked with civil rights movement back then, was doing drugs and stuff like that. But I was never told that part of it. So when I really confronted my mom on it and said, what really happened? Because I was going through some downward spirals in my life. I couldn't pinpoint why. And it started coming up, the real question. And so she finally told me, you know, she finally told me what happened. It made all the sense in the world. And it was right on time too. Because I needed to figure out who I really was. And that piece was very necessary. Out of that, I was able to forgive my natural mother for what happened. And I was able to see things a little clearer because from that point on, the only thing I experienced in my life was confusion. And all of my confusion came from race. All of my confusion came from race. And also the self-education I gave myself, the education that I received from others, it all painted a picture for me as I go through this life that I'm in. And it really made clear how things operate in this country and how things operate 
in this country. And I ended up being a barometer for all of it because I got some understanding. Some insight from both sides. And I want to talk about that a little bit, Tommy, because, you know, through your early childhood with Barbara Jean, your mom and your brother and sister, it definitely included some very happy times in the book. Talk about that. Being raised though by a white family posed some challenges as you grew older. And when your mom took a job and moved the family from Fort Collins, Colorado to Washington, DC, around the time, the week actually that Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, you recall you, your sister and your brother lying on the floor of the car as the riots were happening, wondering what the hell was going on. Yeah. And you go on to say, quote, here's the other thing until we arrived in DC. I didn't know I was black, end quote. So you said that discovery just broke your heart and you tell the story of you, your brother and your sister being chased home from local swimming pool by some black kids. Talk about sensory overload, man. That's a lot of stuff for a young mind to, to be processing. Just shed some light on that period for you, Tommy. Well, the only thing I really knew was that my family loved me, that I lived in a place where there was mountains and streams and animals everywhere and farm. I was a joyful kid, but I loved everything every kid loved. I saw a lot of animals and, and grew up with a lot of litters and just like really just a Midwest boy. So this was dropped because when we were driving into DC, there was tear gas. I didn't know what none of it was, but there's tear gas. We're on the ground. There's troops fires everywhere. And all I know is that we were driving through something pretty rough. And the next couple of days we did go to the pool because my mother makes friends with black people. Eve, and the black kids beat us up really bad that day. And they beat us up like almost damn near every day. If we were alone and they kept saying, kill the white crackers and kill the white cracker lovers. So I finally went to my mom and was like, why are they calling me a white cracker lover? I like graham crackers. And I meant it, graham crackers, are, you, know, you don't need no water with them. You got to eat white cracker with macaroni salad or something, you need them choke. And she said, that's what people, your color call people are color when they don't like them. So I was like, well, what color is that? She said, we're white. I said, no, you're not white. You're beige, like in the crayon. See, cause I come from Fort Collins, Colorado and Laramie, Wyoming. And I thought humans were like animals cause I watched a lot of litters before. So there could be a cat. It could be a black cat. You could have two gray kittens, a white one, a brown one, and a speckled orange one. Or a horse could be a gray horse and it was white colt. So I'm thinking we're like this. Because whatever I am, I'm a brown one. So even though my family wasn't brown like me, we were all in one family, just like the kittens. And that changed drastically when we moved to Wheaton, Maryland. Because that's the first time I heard the word nigger. And grown men. We're chasing me home. I'd be on my bike in a truck, load of grown men would get off, run after me. I'd run through the woods, barely get home. People are throwing stuff through. I went no nigga. I finally went to my mom and said, who are these niggas? We got to stay away from them. They're pretty bad people. She, and then she said, that's what people are. Color call people your color when they don't like them. And I said, well, what color am I? And she said, you're black. I said, no, I'm brown, like the crayon. She said, I know, but that's what we call each other. And at that moment, man, I, my little six-year-old might thought that was the stupidest thing I've ever heard, but where did I belong in all this? Luckily, we finally moved to a suburb of Washington, D.C., right on the district line, right off of 16th and East West Highway. And it was integrated, but not all the way yet. Busing hadn't even started. And this time when the white guys chased me, some black guys got in front of me. And the white guys ran the other way and I've been black since that day. I was like, this must be it. So from that day on, world being a six-year-old. But I'd also had a good influx. I started being able to attach what I was to the rest of this country or rest of this, of what black was through music, through Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud by James Brown. It was one of my favorite tunes when I was a little kid. on the table with a 
spoon. I was just really talented. And my mom exposed me to that stuff. So by the time I'm eight years old, by the time I'm six, I'm pretty hip because those, they're all white people are not the same. The type of white people that I came from are very liberal. I do understand what's happening. Do not want to be racist or willing to explore the truth of that or willing to share resources with others. And so by the time I was six or let's say eight, I already knew how Angela Davis was. I knew the Panthers were. I knew there was a war in Vietnam. It just was that thing. But it was hard. The hardest part was what it really was to be black and all the stuff that I had to go through as a black person that my brother and my sister did not. I think that's the, I think that's the travel of becoming black for real, which is not a color, it's a culture. That's what really took place in my social spiritual space, what took place in my consciousness. I have read Malcolm X when I was, I think nine and my mother gave me the book. It was like, I, I think I read greatest accomplishment on the download. I think she decided I'm going to make sure that this guy knows who he is. And she gave me, bury my heart and wounded knee. She gave me leaves of grass. She gave me all these books and I read them, read them all. She gave me the, what's interesting about the Malcolm X was when she gave me that book, she said, I'm going to give you this book now. I'd read Claude Brown's uh, Man Child in the uh, Promised Land, Baldwin, like all kinds of stuff. And she said, when you read this, I want you to know that white people ain't the devil. Okay. And so I said, I know that mom. I know that. Halfway through the book, I came to the room and said, they might not be the devil, but they sure act like it. <laughs> they could be devilish. Tommy, I'm going to, I'm going to self-relate here for a moment because my mom, who you met years ago, was Italian. My dad was African-American and we had moved out from New York City. Stop, stop. Who's the most wonderful woman I ever met? Oh. I always thought that you were the most lucky human being to have her as a mom, man. She reminded me so much of my mother. And she was so even killed and her spirit was just right. And oh. man, you chip off the old block, I'm going to tell you. Say that. Go ahead. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. So we had moved out from New York City and I was attending fifth grade first public school that I'd gone to. And up until that point, Tommy, I had no racial awareness whatsoever. My mom's family had disowned her. So all we knew was my dad's side of the family, which was the African-American side. All of my friends were black. Everybody I knew was black. There was just, there just weren't any white people really in my life at that point, but I wasn't thinking that way. First day of school, they're playing kickball outside. They make me play in the game. I don't know anybody. I'm a little shy, skinny kid. And this one kid who turns out to be what they call the Duke of the school, the toughest kid in school, starts calling me half-breed. I didn't know what that was. And I thought he was being my friend and I'm like going along with it. And little did I know he's really making fun of me. And so what that started for me, man, was after that, once I realized what was happening, I felt like I had to identify myself as a black kid from that point. You mentioned that say it loud, black and proud. I wrote that on the side of my little low cut Converse all-stars and bleach. And I was going to be the black kid that everybody knew was black. And, but that stayed with me, man, for a long time. It was an, a, a somewhat of an insecurity because I'm light skin, curly hair, whatever. But I never wanted anybody to be uncertain about who I was. And you mentioned this too, where you start to see the world was bifurcated. You see the whole field, the black side, you see the white side, you see the in-between just because of your exposure, right? Through your family and the way that you've right. been brought up. And I think you've experienced that too. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just, just through my, my, just my natural life's odyssey to just start to question it. Because what happened for me was when I was able to concede that I am black. And most of it came through violence, through having to fight groups of people or hurting somebody and then having to go to the principal's office or extreme stuff like being caught stealing. It was these things that it took for me to start looking at. Let me really look at this thing for what it is to me. My grandfather was good. He already taught me that people are all colors and he already taught me that the Native Americans were the heroes and the cowboys. All cowboys didn't kill Indians. So I had a, a really good scope of color and all that. But the scope that I started to really focus in on was why do whites have everything and blacks have nothing? And that had to be answered for me. That had to be answered for me. And I didn't get that answer in school. I got that answer from looking, starting to look really close at the differences of what we had. 
where we lived, what kind of resources we had. And I started that very young, started question. I didn't even question it. I said, there's got to be something here that made this way. I didn't stumble upon what slavery really was until I was probably about maybe 16. You know, I knew that it was an event that took place and I knew all that stuff. I had even seen Roots and all that stuff. But I didn't know. I didn't know the stuff that I learned from just studying on my own. I didn't know. So when I put that together, it became really very simple. It became really very simple once, once I started studying European history because I wanted to. The second that I knew that European history was linked to where we are now, I started diving into that. The whole Black history, African history didn't start coming until after that because I made a connection. And so that was the beautiful part of the education that I was able to receive from others. It triggered me. It motivated me to start looking. And that came from teachers, from coaches, from, uh, from black and white people. Just say, oh yeah, that was this, that was that. At, at some point I was able to put it all together and understand it. I was able to see on the waterfront for what it really is. I was able to see what Of Mice and Men and what Grapes of Wrath was about. I was able to see what Amish died. I was able to start to see all of this stuff. And it all boils down to just understanding your reality. When you understanding your reality, you can operate a little bit better in it. Which includes history, of course. Knowing the history is important. But I want to go back, because you, you mentioned very early, I think around age seven or so, that you started doing talent shows. You were already very comfortable entertaining a crowd, what have you. It wasn't long after that, Tommy, that you also discovered you were carrying a little bit of rage around. And in the seventh grade, you mentioned in the book that you threw a chair at a teacher. And it sounded to me like some of the stories surrounding that, that part of the book, that you were balancing like this tough guy persona with this guy who loved entertaining. You end up going to a behavioral school for a couple of years. So how did that start to, to shape you? Oh, I was confused. I was confused because my neighborhood had changed where if you, if you didn't have a couple of brothers, you're going to catch a bad one all the time. I didn't have a couple of brothers. One brother and he wasn't getting involved in no fighting. I got with a group of friends of mine and we all met when we were about nine or 10. And I was glad to be doing that. Cause I'm like, oh, now I get to be black, really black. But I identified, started identifying that with stealing and, and robbing and selling drugs and all this other stuff I was associating that with. And I didn't break that habit until I or somebody got locked up one time until they started really making sense, thrown out of my house at an early age. Until trial by ass whipping, I started looking at it a little bit different. But it took that. But at the same time, here I was this talented little boy that could sing better than anybody in the whole metropolitan area. You know, I could probably have acted even back then. My mother's best friend, Rosie, took me to see the Jackson 5 when I was eight at the Baltimore Civic Center. And I loved the Jackson 5 before they had afros, okay? That was a long time ago. Before they started wearing stack heels. And me seeing him live was just changed my life. I knew I was going to be an entertainer. I knew right then and there. So everything in my life was surrounded with that. And that could very well have been my saving grace because the record player was like my babysitter. I always went back to the music. It got to a point where grown men would come and knock on my mother's door and say, can he come and sing for our band? What? He's 11. So it was always there. I ran into a girl that grew up with me that I met when I was six years old in the neighborhood. And she was at one of the first talent shows I did when I was six. So it was always there and thank God it was always there because it ultimately kept me out of trouble because I don't know why my buddies wouldn't take me to the final thing that they were going to do. Like when they had to go and take their guns and go do something, or they were going to do rob this, or they were, they always tell me, you can't go, you can't go. And I always thought that all oh, y'all think about bitch or a punk. And they were like, nah, you just can't go. What I didn't see is that God was looking out for me. And so were they. It was something in me that wouldn't let them let me go. I wouldn't have been able to even connect with that if it wasn't for that. Those near misses in our lives, man, that uh, set us on a different path and we almost went the other way can make all the difference in the world. I completely relate to that. So after you went away to this behavioral school, you did for a while, but then fell into some bad habits, as you just mentioned, you moved out of your mom's house. You took two jobs. You read a lot, the autobiography of Malcolm X, Karl Marx. And you mentioned your erogenous zones by Dr. Wayne Dwyer in her chapter in that book 
that was titled Make Your Vacation Your Vocation, and it resonated with you. Though you still dabbled in some counterproductive behavior, that was clearly a turning point for you. And you thought you might want to be a chef. You worked in restaurant world for a little while. And one of your very close friends at one point said to you, you're a dumbass. You're the dumbest MF I've ever met. You need to go do comedy, end quote. So Tommy, talk about the lead up to this moment and then what happened next, because that was a triggering event. After missing by an inch, going to jail, I finally ended up being able to move back in my mom's house. She moved from the neighborhood we were in, moved to the suburbs. This made a difference now. That means I couldn't be over there every day. At least I had to take the bus there. And my goal was to get into college. And so I eventually, when I got out of the behavioral school, I was determined to get back in my own high school, which I did. I actually got yeah, enough grades to get into community college. I had two jobs. I'm making sense of my life here. A friend of mine from around the neighborhood, he got murdered. My first apartment got all the stuff stolen from me and they moved out and I dropped out of college. So I ended up in my own apartment and that's when it started. When I decided I was going to educate myself and that was two old summers, two old year that I just put into doing that. During that time, a friend of mine who grew up in my neighborhood lived in the same apartments. I called him and said, man, I got a job as an assistant chef. I had worked at a work program in high school since I was 15. So I was like 19. I got this job. And he was like, man, you a dumb, man. You ain't got to do all that, man. You it's stupid. You didn't do comedy. He got me to, to go on stage five minutes at the worst strip club in DC. It took me a month to do that. Cause I was like, I'm not doing that. Well, finally we end up down there. The guy said, you got five minutes. I look at him, I go, what am I supposed to do? He says, I'll get what you do. Just go up there and say something. From the first thing I said, people laughed. And I stayed at that club for probably just about three months before promoters were calling me, before I started competing for citywide contests. And it peaked with New York City, with the Apollo. So a big part of my story is New York City. Because I, I, I met a friend who turned into family when I was nine at summer camp. So every year I would go to New York City as much as I possibly could all my life. So I had the New York experience as well. When I go to the Apollo, that's the big deal. I lose by that much. But I meet a guy named Sinclair Jones, who was an attorney at the time. That was about the time that I was hanging out at the cellar and under the stair and over there. I was coming over there before the comedians. Cause I was loving Johnny Kim, but I was loving my cousins who were older went there. So it was just an organic part. And there was a big movement in music anywhere from 79 to about 84. That was Hush Productions. That was Kashif, who was the hottest artist at the time. Nile and Bernard had wrote Good Times, which started hip hop. There's, there's this whole young generation of black people that were changing New York City. They, you know, Stopping Us Now came out. There was this big movement. See, in the 70s, D.C. was the place. D.C. and Chicago, but D.C. was really the place, the Black Repertory Theater, Toast and Strawberries, Petey Green, which is all these different things that were happening in D.C., one of the hip city. And so I got the best of both worlds because I was in both of the hottest era. You did have the era of New York City that was Studio 54, but that wasn't really where we started really hitting our stride. What is his name, the DJ? Rocket. Oh, Frankie Crocker. What Frankie Crocker was able to do. Right. What was happening in New York was a different thing. I got to be privy to all of that. Got it all in. From there, I moved to LA. Let's fast forward to that for a minute. But you mentioned New York in the 80s, Tommy, you're absolutely right. In the Upper West Side, jazz clubs, and eventually comedy, the theater district. You had Isabel, the restaurant. You had Debbie doing Sweet Charity, Phyllis Hyman doing Sophisticated Ladies. The way it was happening, you had Sam Jackson, Denzel, Wesley Snipes, people like yourself. The comedy world just starting to bubble. Eddie becoming a big star. I mean, it was a very powerful cultural era. And then like you, a couple of years later, I move out to Los Angeles. Now you had moved out there a little bit before me following the performances that you mentioned at the cellar and you meet Sinclair Jones, a New York-based lawyer, you two agree to work together, he's gonna manage you. So you go out to LA and you play the comedy clubs, most notably the Comedy Store on Sunset and the legendary Comedy Act Theater in Leimert Park. You talk about this in your book, man, and talk about pressure. The first night that you go on at the Comedy Act, 
you got Magic Johnson, Keenan Ivory Wayans, Damon Wayans, Sinbad, Robert Townsend, and Eddie Murphy in the audience. It's like, all right, Tommy, go. <laughs> so what was that like, man? That's some serious talent. Did you feel pressure or were you hyped that the room was just that deep and you were ready to go? Yeah. I was like, y'all better watch out. Y'all better be careful with me, boy. Because up to that point, I pay a lot of dues. I was still naive. I was still naive about the type of talent that I was. But just coming from where I was coming from, I was ready for that. I was ready for that situation. I was just ready. What I had to bring was organically real. My material consisted of some talents that I had and some ideas that were mine. That was a moment that I had no problem owning because at that point I had really manifested it to a pure talent. It had everything to do with where I came from. And so that moment, I was like, move out the way, move out the way. Cause here I come. I had met Martin and Dave Chappelle years earlier in a comedy club. I didn't cut my teeth in the comedy club. I cut my teeth at concerts, Patrick Bell, Luther Vandross. And I was one of the few comics at the time who had a musical repertoire. It was a repertoire that I had in me since I was a kid. And then all of the contemporary artists that were out. So I could do everything from 67 on up from Al Green. Stop me, girl, as you can. I had that stuff down when I was 11. Or algebra. We are in this love together. We got the kind that lasts for you. Or Lou Ross. You'll never find. Or Mike McDonald. You So I was already doing that stuff. But then there was James and all singers that were coming out. So I had all of that with me. I didn't even know they were called impressions because my mother, when I'd be doing, I'd be in the kitchen doing algebra, doing the big doing, and she used to say, would you shut that up? And then one time she's watching them on TV and she looked at me, she said, do that again. I'd been doing that from the very start. So it really was the perfect eclipse for me. Playing the, the main room at the comedy store was like every comic's goal. It was the biggest room and the one where the stars really hit the stage. There were smaller rooms that other folks played and you played those rooms for a long time. Then the night that you got tapped to uh, play the main room, you're sandwiched between Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor. Tommy, that's just one of those moments, man, you, you can't possibly ever forget. But how did that show go? What was the reaction? Did Richard have anything to say? Eddie have any encouragement for you? How did that, how'd that night go? Yeah. It was one of those nights that I was ready for too. Cause I had been out there for three years. I had been the hottest act, black act period for three years. This was before Fresh Prince of Bel-Air or any of that. I had all these deals that came my way that didn't work out. I had been offered a role on Murphy Brown, which I passed on. I had a, a holding deal from Disney for probably about half a million. Passed on that. Okay. Because Robert Townsend made sense to me. He said, if this is the only deal you think you're going to get for the next five years, then take it. Then there was a pilot with Eddie Murphy's company coming to America. And I chose to do that and it tanked. And I was left with nothing. I was back on the bus. After having a car in DC, back at the deli I was working at. So when I got that call to go to the main room, it was like, you gotta be kidding me. You know, it was like the, it was like the day that Marshawn and the Seattle Seahawks were on the one inch line, except for they gave me the ball. It was like one of those opportunities. So I killed the room. Absolutely standard ovation. Each show, we did four shows. Every show I got a standard ovation. And I was in the little corner of the comedy store that they got the main green room, which got chicks and food and all. You don't even know everybody's back there. And there's these little side rooms where you just sit and wait. And Richard Pryor came back there. He caught us by surprise because there's no doors on this room. And he peeks his head through the door and looks at me. And he looks down and shakes his head. And then he goes, you was a funny motherfucker, man. And walked away. White secretly were like, yes. Oh, man. <laughs> so I called my mother later on. I said, I met Mr. Brian even said this to me. And she said, good. A week before that, she has sent me a letter with a $20 bill in it. And then the letter only had a few words. And it said, don't go home. She said, I told you to stay. 
That's magic, man. Love that. Tommy, I don't want to give too much away in the book. You're talking about what was truly like a golden age of comedy. Names like Pryor, Murphy, Jerry Seinfeld, Ben Stiller, Adam Sandler, a relatively little known Jim Carrey, Dave Chappelle, Paul Mooney, Franklin Ajax. That's like the gold standard of comedy. Am I just an old guy or was that really the era? It was the era. It was the era and we were lucky to be a part of it. When I got there and when you got there a few years after, this was actually what set stand-up comedy to its pinnacle because in that comedy store and the surrounding improv, math factory, comedy stores in Hollywood at the time, were the stars getting the TV shows that they were going to get. Rosie O'Donnell, Roseanne Barr, Tom Hanks, stand-up, he got bosom buddies, never looked back. Michael Keaton, I believe Michael got Batman or something. Adam Sandler went on. Ben Stiller went on from there. Jim Carrey went on from there. Roseanne got the Roseanne show. It all went from there. And you look at Lynn Libby Color, let's not look at the stars that were on that. We know the stars, but the writers went on to create Friends, Martin. The writers went on to create everything that was on TV. So it, it was definitely a Mecca, and it was a Mecca from... 87 till about 98 because, and even going into 99, because look at all the stuff that was happening from a business standpoint. Let's talk about Carl Kanai. Let's talk about Russell's business. Let's talk about Puffy coming out of New York, out of the Andre Harrell Uptown School. Let's talk about where people are now in relation to that period. Denzel did St. Elsewhere, right? From there. I remember when he got his first starring position in a movie was Ricochet. By that time, he was ready. We can go on and on about Kevin Hooks and Thomas Carter and that from White Shadow. Everything that happened starting in the 2000s was set up between those years. Even the business-minded. Even the business-minded. So, Tommy, you land in living color, and you spent a good amount of time on that in the book. I won't go into too much detail. You and Keenan had a complicated relationship, but ultimately a fantastic one, and this was a brilliant opportunity for you, and you certainly made the most of it. You talked about how that show just reshaped the culture of what we came to know as entertainment on television. Just touch on that a little bit. What was the magic behind that program, man? Historically, in a cyclic sense, pertaining to entertainment, that it was the first time that America got to really deal with the fact that we laughed at the same things. We would have never really knew that unless a black cast took on a sketch show. And it might not have ever happened if it wasn't for it. It would have never happened if it wasn't for really the color. Because up to that point, we'd have at the same things. And I call it the black and white era the black and white era because black and whites were laughing at the same shows. We watched Avis and Andy and Andy Griffith and the Beverly Hills, Billy's and all that stuff. We all laughed at it. But this was a time when whites had an opportunity to laugh at stuff that blacks laughed at the same time without being called whatever. It was more revolutionary than we really thought. So when we got on TV, most of our stuff was the social satire and doing commercials, send ups and all the stuff that had been done. But we were ready because all of us had grown up in the 70s, late 60s, with all of that stuff going through our head. So we were able to make fun of everything behind us and everything in front of us. Even though it doesn't reflect itself in the media, it's the most powerful and popular show from the 90s, period. But when they have a magazine, Entertainment Tonight, and they're celebrating the 90s, there's not even one picture of us in it. But who cares about that? Nobody cares about that stuff. We know what's going on with that stuff. You could, you can walk on a concrete sidewalk and, and see that there's a crack in it just so a blade of grass can come out. You ain't gonna stop us. So what we had to offer comedy, because we were pros, we were the best. We were not only good comedians, we all wrote, we all could act, we all could sing, we all had these multiple, and our writers, we all wrote together. And we were all on one page. We understood writing, we understood directing, we understood lighting, we understood costume, but we understood how could we do it. We were skilled. We were with the highest skilled, highest form of television at the time. Well, Tommy, it makes me think about, it's analogous to me to sports to some degree, because in listening to you, I'm thinking about the amount of life that you guys 
David Allen Greer, yourself, Keenan, Damon, brought to that television show that you had lived real life. You had lived it to that point and you were studied and you were versatile and you were practiced and you performed in front of live audiences. And I think about basketball, the NBA, and how early now they're pulling players out of college before they really lived the life. They don't know what to do with their money. Their game's not fully developed, but there's an opportunity to exploit that talent and they pull them out. That's what I see these days in entertainment as well, because comedy became such a thing and comedians became such a thing that too many of these actors and even some musicians now that the music world has changed, if you're not performing in front of a live audience on a regular basis, you're not going to have that same sharpness that somebody who does will. Would you agree with that? Yeah, of course. But that's live. That's on stage. I'm sure that when people who were riding horses saw the first car, they said, man, that thing can't even go up a hill. They had no idea. Things change. Some things don't. And we're dealing with the rudiments and the basics of things. Although what social media has done, what the internet has done is that it multiplies your exposure. Whereas in the era that I came up in, your exposure is multiplied by your trajectory. So the further you go up, the more people find out about you. So it's on a parallel with this, you could start, you could read something interesting on the toilet. And if it gets that many people that see them, Sprite say, we want to do a deal with you, but it's not anything that surprises me because this culture has always done business like that or else they wouldn't be saying as soon as that little piccaninny gets four, you got to start picking cotton. It goes into their till. It goes into their ultimate bottom. We're only in between their ultimate bottom line. They, what? Everybody ain't got nothing to eat? Let them eat cake then. Yeah. But things do change and somehow good prevails. What is good prevails. And that's the thing I'm happiest most about being a part of everything. Yes, sir. I'm with you there. I'm telling me funny, man. You guys at In Living Color in January of 92 hosted a Super Bowl party that was that happened at halftime during the Super Bowl game and snatched the audience over to Fox to watch this party that you hosted. And I think you attracted close to 20 million viewers. It was a ridiculous hit, a great idea. And I happened to get invited to the party and I'm standing there watching you host to do your thing. And you motion over to me to come and hang with you as the camera comes back on. And I end up in a shop with you, Paulie Shore, Blair Underwood. I got my Roxbury t-shirt on and doing my little promotional bits. So thank you for my little 15 minutes of fame there, man. I really appreciate that. Listen, the universe is reciprocal, man. When I used to come down there, you took a liking to me, boy. You just were like, you know something to eat? Hey man, yo, uh, Tommy's here. You make sure that you took care of me, man. You always made sure. And then even over at Georgia and all that, you made sure we stayed friends. Yeah. And then there was a little club that I had. Then I got your mom involved with. She came and did the food. And we did a whole nother thing there. The club wasn't ready for that. But you guys were. And you laid it out for me. We did a new menu. She came down and dealt with the people in the kitchen and stuff. You know, that, yeah, man. It's like, it's the one thing that I'm proud about me is that, that I got to be like my mom. Well, she never was reluctant to give someone something because she understood that a close ear can't receive or give. Yeah, I feel fortunate too, man, about that. No question. I'm just glad that whatever happened to the people that see me later on and I go high and they don't say nothing to me, I'm glad that ain't happened to me. And I'm glad you're not that guy, man. You never forget, Tommy. You go into some of your challenges later in life, some addiction stuff, and I'm not going to get into that. Read the book. It's fantastic. I guess to some extent, man, we all wear a bit of a mask in public, but when your job though, is to make other people laugh while inside you're suffering. I would imagine that can be both cathartic and a way to cover up the pain. Am I close on this, Tommy? Does that resonate at all with you? Yeah, it is. And what people go through first personal, because one of the things that's a little bit askew about the internet is that there's no sense of personal there. It seems like the whole world is trying to solve common problems as a group, as a conglomerate. And it just doesn't go that way. It's the reason why you don't write important things on the bathroom stall. Everybody got to go there so they can read it. But it's just, you're not going to take that stuff serious because it's coming from the general public. And so I can only speak to how fortunate I was 
to have people around me that loved me so much that when I went through the worst of times, they supported me through it to the point that they made clear to me that now you have to do this for yourself. Once I started doing things for myself and start moving towards what I needed to do, I started moving towards this higher power or this God that people talk about. And why we're in a society where you gotta be perfect when we know that you ain't gonna, you know? And so it's creating a mob mentality. If you do a book or you do a song or you do something and everybody gets to comment on it, everybody doesn't have a good sense of outlook on things. So the majority of people who don't give a hell can just say, I don't care what it is, I hate it. I did my book and Amazon lets people comment. At least one woman said, I used to love Tommy Davidson, but now that I read his book, I hate him. Now I'm not really upset about that. I'm upset at Amazon for putting that on there. How would like that with the owner of Amazon? Somebody said that they hate him or you put me in a position to let somebody comment and say they hate him. But what does that mean? That don't mean nothing. That don't mean nothing. That I made it, I made it that far with what I was doing to be exposed to that many people. Lord knows somebody's going to do something crazy or we wouldn't be dealing with them little kids. They got shot in San Antonio and ain't nobody did nothing about it yet. But the hurtful comments, as much as you can get compliments during your life, the hurtful stuff does tend to stick around longer than you would like, but that's really unfortunate. One of my favorite chapters, Tommy, in the book is the final one titled My Reality. I was really moved, man, by your honesty and something that I think a lot about in this age of look at me, social media, where I'm traveling to my car, my vacation, my perfect kids, whatever. We can all be susceptible to comparing ourselves to other people. And I wanted to read a little passage from this chapter that really resonated with me and then ask you to weigh in if you wouldn't mind on the other side. And so okay. you say, quote, my proudest moment in this business was when I realized that I'm Barbara Davidson's youngest son, Tommy. When I realized that everything came into balance, am I an actor? Am I the top actor at the box office? Am I the LeBron James of comedy? Am I Kanye West or even Jamie Foxx? Am I Dwayne Johnson or Kevin Hart? Do I compare myself to what Jim Carrey has going on? I don't anymore because I can't control what other people are doing. I can watch them, enjoy them, appreciate what they do and can learn from them, but I can't be them and they can't be me. Only I can be me. I think that's the place you want to get to, man. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Ain't easy neither, but it's a good thing that I'm not raising the sun every day. Cause I probably keep it down one day. I ain't feeling good. So it's a long way to come. This is personal here. It's a long way to come for me. See, because the way that I came into this world was feeling like I had to fit in with it, feeling that I had to fit in with it. And now that I see the truth of my life, when I see the truth of my life, I can see who I am and I'm uniquely me, but I am an amalgamation of external and internal natural forces that brought me to this moment that makes me. So for instance, when I say. I'm Barbara Davidson's son first is because that's where I got my principles from. That's where I got my outlook on life from. We didn't have nothing. We were on welfare. I didn't look at this stuff till I was grown. Well, welfare, she still got her doctor's degree, doctorate. We didn't have much food. We come home and be coming up the stairs to our apartment. She started giving kids food to take home. And I used to go, what are you doing? And she looked at me and said, you don't ask me what I'm doing. I'm doing it. Do you have what you need? And I always used to think she was crazy. She came to school one time. My sister gets sent to detention and I get sent to class. She come, the hell you sending my daughter to class and my son to detention for? We didn't know that was your son. She said, what difference does it make? If they black and white, they were both late. Then she took me to a park bench and told me, I'm going to tell you this and you ain't going to like it. She said, if you want to be successful in this world, your sister can be late, but you can't. So it was the realities of it. And she, I guess what she taught me most was it's okay to be me, but there's a strong 
gravitational pull in this world, especially this society, where to be over someone is good, to have more than someone is good, to be more powerful than someone is good. And the only way that I was able to equate that to anything that made sense to me was anytime I tried to be more powerful than me, I fell on my ass. And anybody that's more powerful than me doesn't seem to care about others at all. They spend millions and millions of dollars just to spend a few minutes on the moon and don't want to do nothing about people that are sleeping under the bridges over here. So that balance is not for me to bring you balance, but I'm a part of the good balance. Sure, friends are all types of people. And we were lucky enough to grow up with friends of all type of people. In living color, influenced everybody to be around all type of people. Laughing, Desmond Street, all the things that came before, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the busing movement, all of those things made this the way it is. So when I say I'm myself, I'm just glad to be because then now you got no false masters, man. Sir. So, Tommy, closing here, your story of perseverance and navigating through the world of entertainment and life with the start that you had to be where you are now, beautiful wife, kids whose lives you're involved in, your mental and physical health intact, and people paying to see you do what you love to do. That has to feel pretty good, man. And I would imagine that, uh, I hope anyway, that you're finding some peace these days. And I know you've got some music coming out. You sent me a couple of songs that are fantastic. It's great to hear you in your own voice, but I'm hoping you're at peace, man. Yeah, I can say, yeah, I am at peace. I am at peace about who I am and about what I'm about. The world is going to turn. As the world turns, it's going it's to do what it's going to do out here. Now I have a center. Like, I know I'm from New York City. I know I'm from D.C. I know I'm from Wyoming. And I know where I am. I know where I come from. I, I know the brothers and sisters that put it down before I got here. The ones that, that went to high school, went to college, got degrees and did that thing. The ones that just simply made something of themselves at the junior high school as a janitor. It don't matter. It don't matter. I'm, I'm a part of one hell of a sorority and fraternity. I'm black, man. And that carries a lot of strength. It carries a lot of respect for me from my generations before. I could say I'm black and I'm proud and mean that. Mm. I don't have to compromise about anything because we're not in the position where we're not in the power position, economic power position in this world. But when we did run this country, we did it flawlessly for eight years. That's right. That's right. The book is called Living in Color. My guest today is my old friend. Tommy Davidson. Tommy, man, thank you so much, brother, for taking the time to join me. It's great to see you and to talk to you. Man, I want to thank you for just hanging in there because I was just like all over the place. And you're like, nah, we getting this done. My man, thank you, Tommy. I love you much, man. Love you too, brother. Thank you. Hey there. Coming back to everybody portion of my day, which I always say how much I look forward to, is my dear sister friend from way back in the wind days, Ambassador Shabazz, what's going on? How are we moving? Our, our decades, it was way before winsome ever, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so Tommy Davidson, man, your thoughts? Could I be surprised? Probably not. It was wonderful to hear the depth and the narrative in his own, from his own mouth and through your conversation. But I've always known there was something in the root of his body that enabled him to be such a transformative a comic. Some people are great storytellers, but he would become it each time he would morph into whatever it was. And you traveled with him in that process. It suddenly would not be Tommy Davidson you're watching or listening to, it would be that whom he was portraying. And so to learn the journey, I think the bit of me aches knowing about some of his early experiences, but all of it seems to be part of that, which we benefit from in his manner of storytelling. Bless him. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. And you're right. His comedy is also physical. He takes on the various performers that he does, but I just, when you hear a story about someone who has that kind of a start in life and of course has some sorting out to do because however, whatever happens to us as young people, we have to, at some point figure out and 
find a place for it to be able to move forward. But when you hear about somebody who was literally left in the trash, that I just, I could not get that out of my head. What's your thought about what it takes to overcome that kind of a start? What's interesting, having lived now and been on so many sides of stories like that is, was he left in the trash or was he left for someone to save? You never know the motivation of the mom so that not all babies that are found are really disposed of, but if by the grace of God are to be found the way he was and raised and exposed the way he was, I would rather see it from that perspective because I don't think most of us will get through this life without something traumatic tapping on our shoulders, something challenging tapping on our shoulders that we then get to reflect. So he's reflected back to that point. If it had not been his early beginning, who would he be now? Would we know him? Would the journey be as it is? Would it be as fruitful for him and us, his audience, for over a couple of decades? You get to know him personally, but my closest experience with Tommy Davidson is just really watching him over the decades and feeling like you know him. And not just a physical comic, a transformative comic. He could tell a story and he becomes a person. In 97, my mom was in the hospital and there were many thoughtful people that came and spent time with us at Jacoby hospital in New York or Ms. Recordia. And uh, one of those persons was the mother of Sammy Davis Jr., Vira Sanchez Davis, who loved my mother and wanted to stay at that hospital as long as she could just to will her well. And in one of those conversations, Tommy Davidson was one of the persons she mentioned in terms of his likeness to her child. And she didn't speak to her son, speak of her son like a famous man. She said, my baby, his likeness to her son her child. And I think it's not just the mirror image, it's just the being. Something must have resonated about who Tommy Davidson was from the core that made her lean in his direction. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's a multifaceted entertainer. No question about it. And just a genuine cat, man, from day one through today, accessible, reachable, open, will just, uh, he's not one of those guys that, or people that, that forget the folks along the way. I wanted to, uh, to touch on, think about the impact that you can have on young people. I know that you had a group of young folks join you. You went to see Hamilton, you did some cultural stuff. You did some educational stuff. You had to have left those young minds with an imprint of just a, a, a different kind of experience. How did the week go? What's your takeaway from the time spent with the youth that you just hosted? It's interesting. I was, I was really moved. And as I listened to the kind of download or upload that Tommy Davidson had in his early childhood, between 10 and 16, what kinds of books, what he dove into, what his queries were. And his need to have those and his need to have those answers. Same thing happened with these young people. Day one, day two, day three, we had six nights together. And we would always conclude each long, full, eventful day with a reflection in my room. We would gather and they would put on their pajamas and we would sit and talk. And night one, I have to say, I was hurt when one of the most, one of them, all of them promising, but one of them, 16 years old, aspired to be an attorney, a lawyer, and then presumed that it would be futile because as a black girl, she may not live long enough. I didn't even know what to do with that. And then a second one kind of echoed it. Young man echoed it. As the days went, and they were both amazing, as were their comrades, as the days unfolded and the questions they would ask in each place that they gathered, the inquiries, the exchanges that they would have with whoever they were speaking to, they were always enamored with how bright and amazing these young people were. And I have to say by the sixth of night, I asked them that they feel the same way they did night one. And they said they don't. They know that they are here to make a difference in the world. And so for me, with all my fatigue, and grayless hair. I'm old enough to be gray, but I don't have any yet, but it, it's in there. But I have to say that it is so meaningful to think that you can have a part or a role in enabling young people who only hear the worst right now. They are 14 to 16 years old. The last six years, they went from 10 to now. And all they've heard were headlines of futility. So we have to do something about that. How do we challenge the negative with 
real words and experiences of something transformative, positive, constructive, and live it and example it, be it. I have to give kudos to you because you're absolutely right. I, I think when you put it in that context that a 15 or 16 year old, their frame of reference for the last five, six years would be pretty rough. And to have an experience like the one that I know that they had with you is going to be etched in their memory and influential in their life. That's just so meaningful, Ambassador. I want to just acknowledge that. That's your spirit. That's your heart. And that's the kind of work that you do that doesn't get a lot of airtime or any airtime because you're not out there talking about it. You're not seeking publicity for it. But you do that work, that groundwork, that frontline work. I just so admire you for that. Thank you very much. I have to say, we chuckled about it earlier, that I don't have the same buoyancy, but I do really revel in the fulfillment when you think you have made, oh, some incremental difference that enables someone with that already has the skill, that already has the potential, that is already someone we're going to see in the future be reminded that they're worthy of every bit of it. Ambassador Shabazz, that's how we move and you move like no one else. And so do you. Let me just say that listening to you, how you pull things together, it makes me really want to sit back and put my feet up and learn some more. The questions you ask, that which you enable a guest to impart, share. We learn so much about the dimensions of a human being through Corner Table Talk. For me, it's really been a gem to not only listen, but to partner with a childhood friend, brother of mine. I feel the same way. I couldn't be happier to have you on this journey with us. So thank you. Good to see you.